right, Leah. So do you have your list? Yeah, I brought it. Did you bring yours? Yes, I did. All right, who's going to start? Uh, you go first. Okay, okay. Um, so when I was 16, I lived in the woods with 25 kids. And that's when I became vegetarian. And I've been meat-free for more than two decades. Pretty impressive, Catherine. I think you got some real climate bona fides here. <laughs> um, here's a good one. Uh, I did this research project once where we were trying to figure out how much people were idling their cars on campus. And keep in mind, this was in Canada. And so it was really cold and it was the winter. And I would stand outside with a, a piece of paper and a notepad and it was so cold that if you had a pen, the ink wouldn't run. So you had to use a pencil. And what you would do is you would like note down how long people were idling their cars on campus. Like, weren't they probably idling so they didn't freeze? <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably similar vibes. Uh, when I was in undergrad, I went professor by professor trying to convince them all to pledge to have paperless classrooms. Yeah, I think we were all pretty zealous in undergrad. Uh, <laughs> here's one. Here's a more recent one, one that I still am doing that drives my husband rather nuts. Um, I tend to turn off the oven before things are actually done cooking because, you know, I feel like residual heat, residual heat. And my husband's always like, there's no, what are you talking about residual heat? You have to cook the thing for the amount of time that the recipe says you have to cook it for. But I'm like, well, I could just save a little energy at the end there if I just turned off the oven a bit earlier. Wait, you're like putting your fluffy muffins at risk for like a watt or two? Is <laughs> yeah, that what you're doing? You know, I mean, I just feel like you got to try to save energy everywhere you can, you know? <laughs> I, I mean, I will say that I will like accumulate and carry around recyclable items for weirdly long periods of time until I can find a place to put them in a bin, hoping maybe that they get recycled. <laughs> Yeah, I hate to say it, but I do that too, and particularly with aluminum cans. Those are those are really very recyclable materials. Um, so tell me, Catherine, when did you realize that none of this really mattered and none of this was going to stop the climate crisis? Yeah, it's, that's not very nice. <laughs> okay, fair. Maybe that was a little bit of a low blow, but my point is just that we don't want to be fooling ourselves or our listeners about what's going on with the climate crisis. The fact is, the climate crisis is really about a small number of fossil fuel companies who have been lying about their own bad behavior and trying to pin it on the rest of us. Totally agree, but it's not that simple, right? It's a bigger story about all of us humans living on Earth and... I don't think that what we do doesn't count at all. Well, I definitely agree with that when it comes to our political action, let's say. And I feel like we should just unpack these ideas in this episode. This is A Matter of Degrees, stories for the climate curious. I'm Dr. Katherine Wilkinson. And I'm Dr. Leah Stokes. And together, we're going to explore the climate crisis, its roots, its challenges, and the possible ways out of this mess. All right, Leah, before we go on, I feel like I need to admit something. Uh-oh, this is an ominous beginning. 
<laughs> Listen, we're going to be in a relationship together. And I feel like this is just something I've got to get off my chest. So you write about that part of the solution is that we have to electrify everything. So all the stuff in our buildings and our transportation that runs on fossil fuels today, it's all got to run on clean electricity in the future. Yep. Okay. So a couple years ago, my gas water heater dies. I'm across the country trying to figure this out with my handyman and... Basically, in my condo, it was going to be really hard to switch to an electric water heater, and it was going to be three times as expensive, and like it was just a freaking nightmare, and I replaced the gas water heater with another gas water heater. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we did not the, electrify everything. <laughs> we didn't even electrify one thing. <laughs> well, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because the fact is... You know, we're not here to make you or any of our listeners feel guilty. The goal is not shame or climate guilt. It doesn't matter if you replaced your gas water heater with another gas water heater. I mean, it does matter, but not for you listening to this show. And it doesn't matter if you took a flight or if you're still eating beef. We want you to be in the climate fight and we want you to be listening to our show. We are not climate Puritans, clearly, and our tagline is Stories for the Climate Curious. And when we say that this podcast is for climate curious people, we really mean that. If you've found your way to this show, you're probably already worried about the climate crisis, but maybe you don't quite know how to wrap your head around what to do or even how bad it is, and that's what we're here for. Because unfortunately, the public doesn't really hear the big climate story very often. When there are wildfires or heat waves or hurricanes, we don't have TV news telling us that this is climate change and it's happening now. We don't hear much about the fact that it's fossil fuel companies with money on the line that have lied about this crisis for decades. And we don't get told that actually if we want to find a way out of this problem, we're going to need government action to solve it. Instead, a lot of what the biggest climate stories tell us is that we're all to blame, and they often cast solutions as impossible. These big, prominent public narratives can leave people with a sense of doom and a feeling that it's a hopeless situation. And that's not what we want to do for you. We don't want to leave you confused. What we're going to do is tell you stories about the history of climate denial and delay, the movements that are fighting right now for real change, and the technology and policy solutions that actually are sitting right in front of us right now. So it's our first episode, Individual Actions versus Structural Change. What's the right way to think about each of their roles in addressing the climate crisis. We're going to hear from a prominent activist and a prominent researcher who see them pretty differently. And as you could hear from the start, Leah and I also see things a bit differently. So we're going to share our own perspectives, drawing on decades of collective research on the topic. I'm thrilled to be hosting this podcast with my friend, Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, who has her PhD from Oxford University, where she studied climate change. And She's also an author and a teacher and one of 15 women who are going to save the world, according to Time magazine. She's written uh, several books, including the New York Times bestseller Drawdown. And uh, she was the editor of a new book that just came out called All We Can Save. And I'm excited to host the show with you, Dr. Leah Stokes. 
you got your PhD from MIT in public policy, and that's what you work on, energy, climate, and environmental politics. Your book, Short-Circuiting Policy, that came out earlier this year, really pulls back the curtain on the role that utilities have played in climate denial and blocking progress on clean energy. And I also love the publishing that you do for outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and elsewhere. Yeah, and it was exactly about the topic that we're talking about today, individual action versus structural change, and really the links between them. And one of the things that I really love, Leah, is that you open up that essay with a line of poetry from Rilke. Yeah, it's a quote that really informs my thinking about how we can use our own lives to create bigger changes in this world. And it's, it's this, I live my life in widening circles that reach out across the world. So I love this kind of idea of you like making your ripple effects and you walk us through some of that in the essay. So what were some of those first early steps that you took to address the climate crisis? Well, like so many kids, um, especially growing up in the 90s, I was really focused on things like recycling. So when I was in fifth grade, uh, we found out that the little milk cartons that you would get for lunch, they weren't recyclable at our school. And so me and a few friends, we uh, used our lunch hour rather than going out to play recess. We stayed inside and we cut up those little milk cartons and made them flat so that my friend could take them home and recycle them. I like you had like a milk carton gang, like an indoor (laughs) milk carton gang. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It was sort of like, I don't know, our own recycling plant. (laughs) But then you like you went from milk cartons pretty quickly, right, to other things. What were some of those? Well, I mean, when I was when I was in high school, I did things like write to my local grocery store to tell them that they needed to stop selling Chilean sea bass, which was this uh, threatened species at the time that people thought you shouldn't be eating. And uh, I would also kind of get really upset about these huge gas guzzling cars that were just starting to get popular, like Hummers. And I would like flip the bird, meaning give them my middle finger. Um, So it was kind of things like that, sort of things I could do in my daily life that were kind of consumer oriented, um, but not really very political. So what kind of helped you make the leap from those sorts of things, writing letters, flipping birds uh, into kind of more structural projects? Well, when I was in undergrad, I was a psychology major, meaning I was really focused on individual behavior change. And I ended up running this big energy conservation campaign that affected thousands of people at my university, getting them to kind of like turn off the lights and take the stairs and make better choices. And I ran that campaign for several years. And at the end of it, we had saved a bunch of energy, like maybe 10 percent. It was you know, pretty impactful at the scale of what we were working at. But I just walked away feeling like this isn't big enough. It isn't fast enough. And the biggest lever out there is not individual consumer behavior change. It's political change. So you made some pretty big mental leaps in your early days of environmental engagement. How do you think about what those leaps are? Yeah, well, there's actually this cartoon that I love that has gone around Twitter and the internet by this artist named Tommy Siegel. 
And it's called It's That Easy. And it's these four panels that are the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and the 2010s. And really, I feel like it brings me through my own life as an environmental activist. Because the first thing that many people were thinking about in the 80s was, you know, picking up litter, and then you'll save the world, right? So that was what people were thinking about. And then in the 90s, just like my story of recycling those little cartons, it was all about recycling. And so the panel says, recycle, and you can save the earth. And then when I was in university, I got really interested in this idea of a carbon footprint. And actually, my first job after I graduated was working at this NGO, helping them uh, do a carbon audit and figure out what was their carbon footprint. And that was really the way we thought about it at the time. It was like, reduce your carbon footprint and you can save the earth. And then this, this cartoon, by the time it gets to the 2010s, which is where we are now, if not beyond that, it, it's not about litter or wait, recycling wait. or carbon Leah. footprints. <laughs> what? We are beyond the 2010s. <laughs> I know. I know we are. Okay, how should I say that? And then we get to the 2010s and the 2020s and the cartoon says you know it's not about littering or recycling or reducing your carbon footprint anymore the the cartoon says completely restructure global economic systems and you may be able to save a remnant of humanity and that's (laughs) kind of how i think about the problem now yeah with like flame surrounding (laughs) the little cartoon guys Yeah, just like there's flames all across California, Oregon, Colorado, you know, we're living in that flaming world right now. No, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Like, well, where is the recycled item come from and where is it going? And why is it that I actually don't have better options for my water heater or anything else? Um, That's kind of structural stuff. Yeah, I feel like we were all born into this system based on carbon pollution. We didn't choose that. We weren't given an option. That was what we were born into. And our goal during our lifetimes is to not die in it. And the only way we can do that is not to reduce our own 15 tons of carbon pollution a year. It's to think about those 6 billion tons that the U.S. emits every year. And the only way to do that is to really think about policy and political change. And I feel like Greta Thunberg said it very well. I think people should do, should do everything. But I think right now, if I were to choose one thing everyone would do, it would be to, to inform yourself and to try to understand the situation and try to, to push for a political movement that doesn't exist because the politics needed to to fix this Mm -hmm. doesn't exist today. Um, So I think what we should do as individuals is to use the power of democracy that to make our voices heard and to make sure that that the people in power actually cannot continue to ignore this. That's powerful. Wow. Yeah, I feel like Greta totally nails the answer to that question. And, you know, it actually, Leah, kind of reminds me of a quote that's in your essay um, from a real veteran of the climate movement, Bill McKibben. Yeah, he says, changing the system, not perfecting our own lives is the point. Hypocrisy is the price of admission to this battle. 
And you know, Catherine, when I knew that this would be our first episode looking at individual action versus sort of big political and structural change, I knew that we had to call up Bill because he's been a grandfather in the climate movement for decades. And he's been arguing that we need to get organized and get political rather than focusing on our straws or eating habits or really our own consumer behavior. Well, I I mean, I think sometimes people get Got, were getting carried away with the idea that the task was to perfect their own lives. And that's not the task. It is important to do all the things that one can do in one's own life. I'm proud of all the solar panels on my roof. I'm, you know, glad I drove the first electric Ford in the state of Vermont, you know, on and on. But I don't never try to fool myself that that's how we were going to win this fight. So, the idea that somehow it was going to be effective to go off and become a hermit who never used any carbon at all, uh, that that was how you were going to change the game, never seemed persuasive to me. Climate change is a math problem, and, and the numbers are very large. I have the math in that article that I wrote, actually. It's something like each American emits like 20 tons a year, but the entire U.S. is like 6 billion tons. So you could be focusing all the time on shrinking your little number, but forgetting the much bigger number that's floating above you for the economy-wide emissions. Yes. And, you know, I remember sort of that, you know, trying to figure out over the years the rhetoric to get people to understand this. You know, early on in the 1990s, uh, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of attention around light bulbs first compact fluorescent light bulbs, mm-hmm. which are you probably don't even remember. You're no, enough, I do remember. I ran a whole campaign where the symbol was a compact fluorescent light bulb. Yep. Twisty little thing <laughs> yeah. and so on. Great. They were terrific. They saved energy. Why wouldn't you put them in? So on and so forth. But I remember the, the rhetoric I would use then to, I'd say, look, it's important to screw in a new light bulb, but it's probably more important to screw in a new senator. You know? <laughs> um, and I mean, so I don't really know how anyone at the moment could look around. I mean, the day we're talking, doing this interview, three of the four largest fires in California history are burning out of control. It was so dark this morning in San Francisco that streetlights were on in the middle of the day. You know, they evacuated 80,000 people from Medford, Oregon, because a wildfire was racing up I-5. I don't really know how anybody could look at that and really conceive of the idea that we're going to solve this at this point, one Prius at a time, you know? Yeah. If you're going to drive a car, you should definitely try and drive an electric car. And that's important, but it's not how we're going to solve this. We're going to solve it or not by making big, wide economy scale changes. And that's why I keep telling people, all of us have a finite quanta of time or energy or money or whatever to spend trying to solve this problem. So job one is to organize. Job two is to organize your friends and neighbors. And job three is to organize. And if you have some energy left over after that, by all means, you know, check out every light bulb in your house. <laughs> I love it. So we are living through this 
kind of funny and sad experiment of the limits of personal behavior change, right? Because we had a kind of lockdown where people stayed in their homes, they didn't take airplane flights, which is what a lot of um, these climate campaigns focus on in terms of our personal carbon footprint. And people weren't driving to work, we're all on the internet all the time. And yet the best projection for how much emissions will fall this year is 8%. And we know that if we need to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we actually have to cut emissions by about 8% every year out to 2030. So it feels like we've kind of wrung all the emissions out in the first year when it comes to personal behavior change. How have you thought about sort of the COVID experience and how that's made you think about this personal behavior change wedge? Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And by now, there's a report today saying emissions are basically going back to where they were before already. And and there are certain bad habits that I'm afraid are going to get amplified by COVID. People's desire to take public transit, say, is down for reasons that should be clear. It was a pretty good experiment to demonstrate both the importance and the real inherent limitations of personal change. Uh, so 8% is not nothing, right? I mean, that's that's good. Uh, and it was amazing to see how quickly the air cleared over major cities when there weren't people driving all the time and so on. But yeah, that leaves 90% of the problem that clearly is hardwired into our system. And so we're going to have to reach into the guts of that system and tear out the coal and gas and oil and stick in sun and wind. And there's really no way around that. And as you know better than most people, the good news is that's entirely economically doable right now. Sun and wind have gotten so cheap, air source heat pumps are so cheap, that we can go and reconfigure our residential and commercial housing stock and our electric grid And we can do it while basically we save money in the process. So that's the good news. I think if COVID has a silver lining, uh, and really nothing this bad really has a silver lining, but, but that's it, that it offers us a compelling opportunity to make large scale change. Yeah. So there's been some reporting about how BP popularized the carbon footprint. And I remember I was a climate uh, advocate already back then. And I remember this being the focus. And so how how have fossil fuel companies helped to shift the focus away from their own behavior and away from sort of the corporate roots of this problem towards individuals? Yeah, it fits perfectly into the, into the rhetorical arsenal of the oil companies. It's like, it's not our problem. We just supply a demand and it's all your fault for using this stuff don't get mad at us. We're just the pushers. You're the junkies, you know, which is a ridiculous argument. Yeah, people should obviously not waste energy. Uh, you know, your carbon footprint is a good thing to try and lower. But the way that we're actually going to lower carbon footprint is to stop burning carbon based fuels, which is precisely the thing that the fossil fuel industry is desperate to avoid us doing. That's why they're spending all their time lobbying to make sure that nothing changes. That argument was perfectly designed for a kind of uh, mindset of 
consumers, which is what we allowed ourselves to become too much in this country, uh, allowed ourselves to conceive of ourselves mostly as consumers. But in fact, we need to conceive of ourselves mostly as citizens. I agree so much. Yes, I agree so, so much. And it's like the whole thing becomes around if you're a consumer, then what can you do to consume less or consume better? As opposed to if you're a citizen, what can you do to create laws so that you have better choices to be making in the first place? I think what I keep trying to say to people is, yes, it's very important to make your own life responsible just because that's important. But by far the most important thing an individual can do is be less of an individual. Join together with others in movements big enough to matter. That's mathematically where our hope lies at this point. Now, if we had, if the physics was different, if we had 75 years to deal with this, then we'd have a whole other set of possible answers. And a lot of them would have to do with individual action. Look, human change in human societies really does come best when it comes slowly and gradually. So in an ideal world, you know, I'd put solar panels on my roof and my sister-in-law would come over at Thanksgiving and see them and get excited and put them on hers and her neighbors would see them. And, you know, 15 years later, the problem, you know, would be starting to be addressed. If we had three quarters of a century to deal with climate crisis, then by all means. But we don't. We had to start 30 years ago, and we didn't. We've got to compress, according to the IPCC, the work of 40 years into the next decade. So that's only going to happen if we figure out how to work together. Together. Human solidarity is going to be the key here. That was Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org, journalist, climate activist, and all-around climate mensch. So, Catherine, what did you think of my conversation with Bill? Well, obviously, I loved it, Leah, because you're you and Bill's Bill. Um, And... I mean, I think he's totally spot on, right? That our focus has to be on building the biggest, strongest team possible and linking arms and addressing the leadership crisis that's at the heart of the climate crisis. And I think where I feel like I have sort of a slightly different perspective or maybe something to add is that I don't necessarily think that big, deep structural change is antithetical to individual action. I think maybe I see them as more complementary, that actually maybe individual action is a thing that can lead us into and help us stay in the work of bigger collective efforts. Yeah, I think that's totally valid. And I know from your own experience, living out your values personally has been a big part of your work in the climate movement. Can you tell us a little bit about your own experience of coming to the climate movement? So when I was 16, I spent a semester at the Outdoor Academy, which is an experiential education program in Western North Carolina, right near Pisgah National Forest. And 
I lived in a one-bedroom cabin with 10 girls, and we chopped wood to heat our cabin and mowed the hay field with mules and worked in the garden and composted like you wouldn't believe. Um, But it also was the time when I started to really understand the depth and the intensity of the challenges that we're facing. What happened for me at that age was kind of this environmental awakening um, about the way that I lived my own life, but also about the work of social change and social movements. And so it's so entangled, right? The personal and this sort of politicizing moment that I had. Can you tell me a story, Catherine, from that time in your life when you were sort of living, when you were 16, out in the woods, Can you tell me a story about what it was like to have a kind of awakening? Yeah, I think this must have been my environmental studies class. Uh, We went on a a long hike in Pisgah National Forest up through this really beautiful valley with a creek running down it, like incredible, lush ecosystem magic. And... We came up, 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 and out onto this ridgeline to just a completely denuded mountainside, freshly clear-cut. And the starkness of the clear-cut and the intact ecosystem and this sense of just, really just like massacre of the planet's living systems at the hands of human beings, and in particular, extractive capitalism. It was just a moment of feeling utterly heartbroken. It set into motion so many of the things that have followed. I mean, I feel like my life is still ripple effects of that of that time. Yeah, I feel like so many of us in the climate movement, so many of our listeners, I'm sure, who are even just climate curious, We've all had these experiences where we've seen the beauty of the planet, we've seen the destruction and devastation of our ecosystems, and we've been called to action. I mean, so many people this summer have been living through entire ecosystems across the West Coast of North America burning up and living through orange skies. And I can only imagine what that's doing for people um, in terms of how they see their own lives and how they see the scale of change and the pace of change that's necessary. Yeah. And I think like we feel we feel the tension right in our own lives of the ways that we have to live today because of the context that we're in and the kind of world that we want to build. So I think I have some empathy for folks who focus on kind of individual actions as maybe a way to try to live into their values and feel more in alignment or integrity with the world that they imagine. Not because those actions will ever be enough, not because they will ever get us to the emissions cuts that we need or a zero carbon future, right? Um But because we're humans and we're like struggling to have a sense of integrity between our values and what we imagine and how we show up in the world day to day. 
And I know, Catherine, you called up somebody to have a conversation about personal behavior change and the climate crisis. I did. I wanted to talk to Dr. Shazia Natari, who I met a couple of years ago at an event at National Geographic focused on this very question of climate change and behavior change. Public opinion about climate change is very strong. It's very high. But again, when you ask an average person, hey, what should we be doing? There's no clear path. She was gracious enough to give us some time to tell us a little bit about her work. Certainly, there are plenty of folks in the climate community that are skeptical about the idea that individual action matters. How do you talk to those folks about your research or sort of your thinking in this space more broadly? So there are two uh, there are two things that I talk about. One is we had a paper um, come out a couple of years ago looking at the individual behaviors that climate communicators do and how that impacts um, their audience's behavior changes, willingness to change their own behaviors, and also their willingness to support policies that are climate policies. And what we find is a direct relationship between the carbon footprint of the communicator their credibility and the support and willingness of their audience to A, be willing to support policies that are um, climate friendly and whether they're willing to change their own behaviors. So there is a direct connection between your communicator's carbon footprint and your audience's willingness to change their own behaviors and policy support. So we we have documented data on that. I feel like whether she's been strategic about it or not, it seems like Greta has done a a really good job of using personal action to solidify and amplify her message. Would you, does that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that actually, um, we did not study sort of very, um, famous uh, people. We study just basic science communicators, climate communicators, and that matches our data really well. On the second regard is that people need an invitation and they want to feel like I want to feel like I'm making a difference. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I always asked myself, hey, what is the meaning of all of this? What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? What am I doing? What is my call to action? And so any good story or any good hero's journey where we're all heroes has a call to action. And so telling people that, hey, your individual behaviors don't matter, I think there's no data to show that. Because if if we said that, then we wouldn't have people like, you know, Mahatma K. Gandhi or, you know, uh, uh, Michelle Obama, you know, or, you know, any yeah. of these people that have inspired so many others. So I think... It's very hard to capture the amount of effect any given individual has. And so because we can't measure it, people tend to think, oh, you know, maybe it's not as important. And if you were to ask anyone in the climate space, is it more important to have individual behaviors or political action? You know, we need political action. Everyone will agree to that. But the question is, how do we get there? So just talking about a carbon tax for the past 30 years and not figuring out the psychological reactance that people have to actually implementing it is really problematic. And also focusing on one solution rather than a variety of solutions is really problematic. So this is sort of where all of these fields become a complete smorgasbord 
of um, how to make action action really happen. And there are lots of ways. Yeah. We, as you said, we need to invite everybody to the table. Does that end up inspiring them or kind of giving them an on-ramp into participation and bigger collective change? Or does it make them feel like, oh, I've done my bit <laughs> um, and I'm and I'm off the hook? What what have you all found looking at that? So in general, the uh, what the research shows, and this is not work done by me, but it's done by um, folks like Elke Weber and others. And what they found is that doing some of these behaviors can lead to the single action bias where you've done one bit and you go on to the next behavior. But alternatively, it can also lead to the avalanche effect where you feel good after doing these behaviors and you do more and more and more and more. And you're like, whoa, what happened? My life is completely transformed. Just when I think about my own journey in this space, I feel like part of what kept creating an avalanche effect was that I kept getting an invitation to some next thing, right? There was someone who reached out a hand, right? And said like, come on, we need you, right? Or that's cool. Have you then thought about this next thing? And I think that's like, I would love to know more about what that relational importance is in, in the avalanche effect. Um, I don't know. I just, I think a lot about how do we make the climate space more inviting, more welcoming, less shaming and finger wagging, you know? Oh my God. Yes. Yes. A million times over. And also how do we invite people who have historically not been environmentalists or who don't view themselves as environmentalists? Because I think if you're living on this planet, we are all by our nature, enjoying the planet, enjoying nature, using nature. And so we need to all be environmentalists and we need to re, um, retake that label and change it, make it a bigger, bigger bucket, bigger home for everyone. So I'm with you, Catherine. Let's let's invite all of the listeners to join in. We need the biggest team possible. That's right. Planet um, Earth or bust. Planet Earth or bust. Um, yep. One of the criticisms that comes is like from folks in the climate movement is like, if we focus too much on individual behavior, we're implicitly telling people that they are to blame when we know that the blame rests quite squarely on the fossil fuel industry and industrial agriculture. How do you make sense of that? Like how, how do we get the benefits of individual action, but also have people understand the systemic situation that, that we're dealing with? I think one way to do that is by talking through the numbers, which is something I've seen you do in your TED Talk and in other places, basically showing where some of the biggest emitters and polluters are. That's the first bit, but uh, facts don't work for everybody in the same way. So graphs and numbers don't work for everybody. So I think explaining it in the way you just did, where there is a connection, there's a path be between individuals and policy. And there have been studies that show that path. But at the same time, individuals by themselves are not enough. And saying that really clearly, I think, explains some of the nuance of the situation because just saying, hey, individuals don't, you know, you can do whatever you want or don't do anything, that actually leaves us very handicapped. Because for me, I'm just like, 
I care about this. I need to feel like I matter. I need to feel like my life has meaning. Because if it doesn't, then what's the point? Why am I doing all of this? Um, and so in order to feel that, both in a, in a real way and a way that I actually do have meaning, I think threading that needle and sort of explaining the nuance is really, really important. So it's not that, I mean, Greta is an individual and I would say she has made a difference. You are an individual. And when it comes to climate communication, you have made a difference. So we have here two data points <laughs> where individuals have made a difference. But then to quantify what is the emission reduction that your one talk does, it's really hard. And it's kind of a it's crazy really hard. challenge. Like, So I think doing that in a way that's quantitative is problematic. But at the same time, explaining to people that we can imagine another world and they're part of it mm-hmm. is really powerful. That was Dr. Shazine Atari, Associate Professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University Bloomington. Her research looks at people's judgments and decisions about resource use, and ultimately, how to use that information to motivate action on climate change. Well, I think at the end of the day, Catherine, it's really a question of is personal behavior change a compliment? Does it increase our likelihood to act together? Or is it a substitute? Is it going to demobilize this and make us less likely to try to act together? And I don't know if we know the answer to that yet, but I sure know that I'd rather have people voting and protesting and calling their representatives than worrying about their plastic straws or, you know, whether or not they took a flight in the last year. No, I think you're I think you're spot on, Leah. And I guess I just think that anything that keeps us focused on what we want, focused on the values that we hold, focused on the world that we want to create, that's a good thing. And I can't vote three times a day, but I do eat three times a day and sometimes more than three times a day. (laughs) And right, every time I do that, I have a chance to think about my connection to the planet's living systems, the way that I want to show up in the world, not in how I'm eating, but in the kind of change maker I'm trying to be. I guess for me, I just don't want to put barriers up against people coming into the climate movement. And I don't at all think that's what you're doing. But I think that people sometimes think that climate action is about sacrifice or about, you know, giving things up. And it's really about working together to create a stable planet to create a better world for our own lives and for the lives coming after ours. So from my perspective, these these big structural changes, that's what we've got to be focused on. And and I don't want to be shaming people or turning them off from joining the climate movement. You'll actually be proud of me, Leah, this week as we've been uh, thinking about this episode. I got asked to help with, advise on a book about personal carbon footprints. And I wrote back, absolutely not. We don't need people thinking about carbon footprints. We need people thinking about power. (laughs) Well, Leah, it sounds like we've got some stories to tell. 
We do. And there are stories that don't require climate guilt because we're going to be focusing on the big polluters, like the companies that the Trump administration is currently bailing out. We're going to look at the big forces that are mobilizing to stop them, like the youth climate movement. And we're going to talk about solutions. Could we have a clean electricity system by 2035? And what would that change? Can we actually undo the harm that we've already done to the atmosphere? And what about our responsibilities to Black and Indigenous communities? How have we been exporting our pollution from the fossil fuel-based system into sacrifice zones for these people? A Matter of Degrees is co-hosted by me, Leah Stokes. And me, Katherine Wilkinson. We are a production of Postscript Audio. Jamie Kaiser, Sydney Bartone, and Stephen Lacey produced this show. Sean Marquand edited, mixed, and scored the show. Additional music came from Blue Dot Sessions. The show art was designed by Carl Spurzum. Our website was designed by Caroline Hadalaxono. A special thanks to the funders and supporters who made this show possible. The Hewlett Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, The 11th Hour Project, UC Santa Barbara, and others. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, or any other place you get your shows. And you can follow both of us and our production team on Twitter. You'll find our accounts in the show notes. Stay with us as we tell more stories for the climate curious. 